Amen. Friends, that is our hope that Christ is ours forevermore. Because let's be real, there are wonderful things in this world and wonderful things in this life. And there are horrible things in this world and in this life because of sin. And so our lives can be a struggle uh, often. And Christ being ours forever and us being with Him forever is our ultimate hope. God is faithful and God is true even in the midst of suffering and heartache. And so, let's go to God now as we look to the Bible. Because I don't trust in my, my strength and my ability to be able to preach God's Word to you. And I don't trust your ability to be able to hear it on your own and understand it and then be joyful over what it says and know God. He has to help us. So let's go and ask Him to do that. Our Father in Heaven, we do pray that you would continue to remind us of how much we need you and continue to remind us of how utterly faithful you are. We pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit now. We pray that you would fill me as the preacher of your word with your spirit that I might be helpful to these dear people. We pray for all of us that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that would love your truth. Hearts that would agree joyfully with what your word says. God, we pray that you would continue to give us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would be imparting and giving and sustaining faith even now as we look to your word. And we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, it is Sunday. That's no surprise to anyone in the room. First day of the week. I don't know if that's always registers for us, because a lot of times we think of the weekend as Saturday and Sunday. But the week really ends, the seventh day of the week is Saturday. Sunday is the first day of the week. And in the New Testament, it's often referred to as the Lord's Day. That's why we gather on the first day of the week to worship our risen Lord Jesus. But as this new week is about, well, has started, and as you're thinking, many of us are thinking about the work week that is ahead that will begin tomorrow. Assess the week that just ended. Assess it honestly. Reflect back on the last seven days. And ask yourself, wrestle with the question, how did it go? How did it go? And I'm not just talking about circumstantial stuff. I mean, that matters, you know, what happened, what you did. But I'm talking even deeper than that. Thought level, heart level, affections, desires, feelings, thoughts. How did it go? A lot of times here at CBC, we, we use language like this, that we are imperfect people, rescued by a perfect Savior, will say that this church is only for sinners. And that if you're not a sinner, we got nothing for you. If you understand yourself to be righteous, you may as well leave now. We've got nothing to give you. We talk like that. We, we talk as Alan did today, or as Ron did the last couple of Sundays that he led service. When we gather after we sing a song and the announcements are made and all of these things... We will talk about the fact that we come in here burdened and distracted, struggling, wrestling, sinning. 
And that's why we do a moment of silence for preparation. That's not just some weird formal thing in order to be like awkwardly hip or something. It's not what we're doing. We do that on purpose because we believe that that's true, that we come in here very much conflicted inside. And so we don't do this stuff, as I've already said, to be cool. We don't do it to be cute or trendy. But we also don't say these things constantly and regularly in order to somehow condone sin. It's not what we're doing. Like, oh, well, the reality is we all struggle like crazy and so therefore it's okay to sin. Never is that what we would say. We certainly do not celebrate sin. We do this stuff and we say these things because of the fact that we really are sinners. Every one of us. All of us are strugglers. And so, you've come in here today, I've come in here today, weary from various things, even over the last week. Maybe it's depression or anger. Maybe it's your battle with anxiety or frustrations of various kinds. Maybe it's trouble at work, trouble in your marriage. Maybe you've come in here burdened over your struggle with addiction or bitterness, lust or pride. Maybe you just know that you have been doing nothing but grumbling this week and despairing of your circumstances. Well, if that's you, and I trust, if we're honest, that's all of us, the million-dollar question to you is, where is your hope? Where is your hope? Where does your confidence lie? We've just said that Christ being ours forevermore is our ultimate hope, and that's true, but how do you know that that's going to be a reality for you? How do you know that you're going to get Him? Because I would state very clearly, I, I trust that I, I'm not going to have any disagreement from you at all, but if our confidence and our hope lies in our ability to even keep it together let alone keep God's law, we're doomed. Our hope must be in something else. Our hope must be in something other than our own ability to obey. And I trust that that's why you're here. Because you know that your confidence and your hope must be in something, in someone outside of you. And so you come on a Sunday morning like now. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're going to open them up to the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. That's going to come as no surprise to most of you as we've been making our way through this letter for a number of weeks now. Even if you're new with us today, don't be alarmed. Hopefully I'm going to be able to give enough context that you'll understand where we've been. And I trust that the arguments Paul makes in the verses we're going to look at today are straightforward enough in and of themselves that they will not be difficult to understand. It appears we're having some difficulties with equipment. Not going to worry about that. I've given you a moment to flip now. The verses I do believe will be on the screen. Uh, we're going to be looking today at Galatians 3, 15 to 18, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 10, just for context. So listen now as I read God's word. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, 
the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I have four points for us today for our consideration. Uh, But before I even launch into point one, just a general overarching comment. Paul is continuing his argument that he has been making for a number of verses now. That we are justified. And by that word justified, we mean we are declared righteous before the holy living God of the universe. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. His work, His death in our place. We are justified by faith in Christ, not by works of God's law. We are not justified in God's sight by obeying well enough. By keeping the law. By observing traditions like circumcision or whatever. We are saved completely by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to continue to make this argument by considering Abraham. We've been considering Abraham now even in our time together in Galatians for the last two Sundays. This will make the third Sunday in a row where we're going to be thinking about Abraham and how God dealt with him. Paul uses Abraham and points to Abraham's life and interaction with God. And in particular today... He's going to be pointing to the covenant that God made with Abraham and what that means for us as the people of God now. We're going to think about that covenant that God made with Abraham and its relationship in redemptive history to the giving of the law. And it's going to be instructive for us on the way that God saves his people. And Paul is going to continue as he's been doing to ground his arguments in redemptive history, which is instructive for us just kind of quick aside. Instructed for us in reading the Bible, in understanding how it hangs together. We take our cue from the New Testament writers in understanding the Old Testament, that they understand it in a redemptive historical way. And that's how he's arguing with respect to Abraham. So now that I've made a few of those overarching comments, we're going to dive in. Point number one for our consideration today, it's not groundbreaking, not really revelatory, given that I've already read the text. Point number one is that God made a promise to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. We have gathered today to worship God who keeps his promises. He made a promise, he'll keep it. But let's think about that together for just a moment. God promised Abraham, this is back in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. In chapters 12 and following, God makes a promise to Abraham that he will give him, overarching sense, land and universal blessing. Land and universal blessing were the promises that God made to Abraham. And as Alan already referenced earlier today, when God continues to tell Abraham, this is what I'm going to do for you, 
and asks him in Genesis chapter 15 that we read earlier, step outside your tent for just a moment, look into the stars, if you can even count them, that's how many your offspring will be. You might not have an heir right now, you will, I promise you, even though you're old. You will have a son by your wife Sarah, and you will have a people, you will have land that you will inherit, you will have blessing forever. Abraham says, but, but God, how? How do I know that that's going to be the case? How do I know? And so then God enters into a covenant agreement. He says, let's make a covenant together. Alan briefly described this earlier, and I'm fine with him doing that. It maybe saves me a little bit of time. But as was customary in that, in that time, and is still done even today in areas of the world, when a covenant was entered into of this nature, blood was shed. So these animals, as we read about in Genesis chapter 15 earlier, were cut in half. One half laid over against the other. And as was said earlier as well, what would typically happen is both parties that were making a covenant together would walk between the severed pieces of the animals to say that if I don't keep my end of this, do this to me and more so. This is how serious this is. I am guaranteeing, I'm I'm staking this on my life that I will be faithful to my end of this agreement. This is as serious of an agreement as you can enter into. So this is the kind of agreement that God is making with Abraham. And what's amazing about Genesis 15, describing this event, this covenant-making event, is that when it comes time, God is going to pass through, certainly between the two halves of the animals, saying, I'm going to keep my end of this thing. But when it comes time for Abraham to do it, Abraham's asleep. Abraham is not active in that sense. He is sleeping. A deep darkness has fallen over him, but he is asleep. And God then walks through again in Abraham's place. So God is saying, not only will I keep my end of this covenant, but I am guaranteeing your end as well. I will keep my side and I'm going to keep your side of this thing. This covenant is unbreakable because God is always faithful to himself. He cannot deny himself. So Abraham would fail. We know that. Just like us. We considered that a lot a couple of weeks ago. How Abraham rightly so is held up as a hero of the faith. And at the same time would be the first person to say, I am a sinner like you in desperate need of a great savior. And so if this covenant was going to stand, God had to do it. All, And that's what God promised to do in Genesis chapter 15. It would last because God would make sure of it. God would not fail. And so the covenant wouldn't either. And so that brings us to our second point of consideration. These first couple will go quickly, I, I trust. Point number two is that the promise is realized and fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So if point one was God made a promise to Abraham. Point two is that That promise is realized and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if you put your eyes on verse 16 of our text, Galatians 3.16, Paul is going to connect this for us. He says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. He is referencing and interpreting for us Genesis 12.7, Genesis 13.15, Genesis 17 and verse 8. On all of those verses, 
God says to Abraham, to you and your offspring, I will give this land. So Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understands that the promise of land and the promise of universal blessing was ultimately made to Jesus Christ as the representative offspring of Abraham. Let me say that again. So Christ, as the representative offspring of Abraham, he too is the representative offspring of David. Right? As the representative offspring of Abraham, these promises were ultimately made and find their fulfillment in none other than Jesus Christ. Now certainly, when we read Scripture, something like Psalm 2 is in view here. Psalm 2 and verse 8. God the Father says to the Christ, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, and I will make the ends of the earth your possession. That kind of thing is in view, in that it has always been the plan of God, that ultimately Jesus Christ, God the Son made flesh, would inherit this ultimate promise of land and people and blessing. Jesus is the fulfillment, as we know, of the original promise of redemption that God made in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, that most horrible chapter where sin enters the world through man's rebellion, that's not all that happens. God makes a promise that He will, in fact, redeem, that He will save, that He will do good, and that He will reverse the effects of sin and the curse. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, He promises that there will come one born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head, the serpent being Satan, who would crush the power of sin and death, who would reverse all of the curses that sin had brought. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So we, as the people of God, will inherit a land, and that land is called the new heavens and the new earth. And we will inherit that land and we will inherit blessing, the kingdom of God, through Jesus Christ or no other way. The only way to inherit the land that God has promised His people and to inherit the blessing that God has promised His people is through the one to whom it was ultimately promised. And His name is Jesus Christ. So that brings us, friends, to point number three of our consideration today. Number three is this. In light of number one and two, that God made a promise to Abraham and that that promise is realized and fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Number three, and so the law which came after the promise does not make the promise void. And so the law which came after the promise does not make the promise void. Put your eyes on verse 15. You'll see there that Paul says that he is giving a human example. I'm giving a, to give a human example, brothers, or brothers and sisters, it could easily be rendered. He's talking to everyone. Think about man-made covenants, he says. No one annuls or adds anything to those once they've been ratified, once they've been validated. He's making an argument, you see, from the lesser to the greater. If this is true of even man-made covenants, that once they are ratified and validated, they're not changed. You don't add something to them, but you certainly do not annul them. Well, then how much more so is that true of a covenant that God has made? It's an argument from the lesser human covenants to the greater covenants that God makes. God made the covenant with Abraham that we've already considered together today. And then we read in verse 17, you can put your eyes there with me. 
that 430 years after God made the promise to Abraham. So this is going to contain all of the time. Abraham would have a son, Isaac, who would have a son, Jacob, who would have 12 sons who would become the tribes of Israel. And then we know that one of those sons was sold into slavery in Egypt. We know that ultimately the whole tribe moved into Egypt because of famine. And so then they would spend 400 years, as God had said. They would spend 400 years as sojourners in another land. So all of that is what's happened in that span of 430 years. And then as you know, Moses leads the people of Israel out of the promise, or excuse me, out of Egypt toward the promised land, but they spend decades in the wilderness. But it is after they have left Egypt under Moses that God would give the law. He would give the Mosaic covenant. He would give the law through Moses then. So 430 years from the promise to Abraham until the law is given. It's kind of cool just to kind of wrap your mind around that. How this is unfolding in time and space, right? This is not just a story. It's not just a fable. This is history. Okay, so the, the law that was given 430 years later could not, in Paul's mind, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it could not and it did not annul the promise that God had made to Abraham. That promise that God made to Abraham stands. And so whatever the law is, it does not serve to in any way annul or cancel out the promise that God had made prior. So it does not work to say that the promise of eternal blessedness and inheritance and land and all these things that God made to Abraham was grounded in Abraham keeping the law. That's not possible. Abraham didn't have the law. He had no law to keep. He received that, the inheritance, blessing, all of those things. He was counted righteous, we're told, by faith. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. There was no way that he could have received these things by law-keeping in that the law didn't exist. That's plain to see. But then someone might object that once the law was given, okay, 430 years pass, and God is dealing with his people, primarily the nation of Israel. He is making a people for himself. And now he is making another covenant with them. He's making a covenant through Moses. And now the covenant that God is making through Moses has changed the terms of the game. Someone might object that. The Mosaic covenant has changed the rules, man. It's different than it was before. Paul makes it quite clear that that is not, that's not possible. That's not faithful, right understanding of how these covenants work together. He makes it quite clear that the law is subservient to the covenant that God made with Abraham. There is no way that it would have canceled it out. God's covenant with Abraham is not made void by the law in the mind of the Apostle Paul inspired by the Spirit. End of conversation as far as Paul is concerned. And we're going to think now, as we, we turn our time to the rest of the, the sermon, it's going to be under the heading of point number four. This is going to be by far the longest point. I'm just going ahead, truth and advertising. Okay, so buckle up, here we go. Point number four, we're going to consider some of these things and how they hang together, and even the covenants and how they relate. So number four is this. The inheritance comes by promise, not law. So if number three was the law, which came after the promise, does not make the promise void. Number four, the inheritance, and by that we mean salvation. The inheritance, by that we mean the land, the new heavens and the new earth. That comes by promise, not law. So in verse 18, just to be crystal clear, when Paul uses that language of 
the inheritance, for if the inheritance comes by the law, what he is talking about is eschatological in scope. He's talking about new heavens, new earth, God forever, the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises. That's what the inheritance is. Just so we understand what's at stake. It's no small thing. The promise of God that he made to Abraham, I think it should be clear to us already in the way that it was made. The promise that God made was free. It was free. It was not grounded, in other words, in Abraham's merit. It wasn't grounded in his righteousness. He had not earned the promise that God made. God was in no way obligated or in no way bound to make that promise that he made to Abraham. Brother, I would say it's like winning the lottery to you know, an infinite scope. I mean, it is absolutely like mind-blowing how gracious and free this covenant was and is that God made. And if we understand that that promise of God is free, then we can understand this principle. In the words of John Calvin, he says, I repeat, if you do not understand that the promise is free, which we do understand that, there will be no force in what Paul is saying. For the law and the promise are not at variance, but on this single point. There is only one way that the law and the promise are at variance with one another. Here it comes. That the law justifies a man by the merit of works, and the promise bestows righteousness freely. That's how they differ. The law justifies a man by the merit of his works. The promise bestows, gives righteousness freely. Romans chapter 4 is helpful in thinking about how the inheritance is coming by a promise, not law. It's coming by grace. It's coming by this bestowing of righteousness freely, not by our working to earn it. Romans chapter 4, verses 14 and 16 read this way. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So Paul, in another letter to the church in Rome, is saying that if the inheritance, if eternal life comes by law and not promise, then faith is nothing and the promise that God has made is voided. It's over. It is no more. Then Paul goes on to say, that is why it depends on faith, the inheritance. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest not on merit, but on grace. So what's the promise of God grounded in? It's grounded in grace, unmerited favor. So it is true. I've said this before in this sermon series. I want to say it again. It's going to be really clear. It is absolutely true that if a person could keep the law perfectly, if you or if I or anyone could keep God's law perfectly, not just in deed, but in thought, in heart motivation, in every way, if that could be done, then righteousness could come by the law and inheritance, eternal blessedness, could come by the law. But as we have talked about so many times, and Scripture makes very clear, it is not possible for men and women born in Adam to do that. We cannot keep the law perfectly. We have inherited Adam's guilt, and we have inherited Adam's corruption. And friend, obviously, God knows this far better than you do. God knows this far better than I do. God had so clearly determined to save His people by grace through Jesus. Clearly. 
clearly. So God had other purposes in giving the law. He never gave the law that it would be the means of salvation. He never did. He always intended to save by His promise, grounded in His grace, His faithfulness, His character, accomplished through Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit to be received by faith. That was always the plan. And so whatever God meant in giving the law, it was not to give it to save. And we're going to think about that more next week. So that's my little kind of plug, my little trailer. Come back next Sunday. And we'll think about, well, why did God give the law? Because you just go and skip ahead. We'll go and cheat. We'll do this real quick. Put your eyes on verse 19. This is fun. Paul says, why then the law? Right? Like his argument is he knows this is so strong and radical sounding. You're going to say, well, why on earth did God give the law then? Come back next Sunday. And we'll consider that together as we look to the Bible. Okay, so friends, I want us to think now as we continue to wrestle with this reality that the promise is what gives us the inheritance. The inheritance comes by promise, not by law. Let's just continue to reason together. I want to do just very quickly, and I'm going to, I like to give disclaimers when I do things like this. There's, there are differences in theological lectures and sermons. Amen, somebody. Right? To give a theological lecture is not, is not preaching. And what I'm about to do is not lecture, but it is theological in its nature. This is a theological conversation that we're about to have. You have been warned. So here we go. It's good for us to do this. This is helpful. So when we think about the Bible and how it hangs together and the covenants of God and how they hang together, a text like we have today, Galatians 3, 15 to 18, is really helpful because Paul is teaching us how to understand the Bible. Paul is teaching us how important it is to read Scripture in its redemptive historical context. Let's think about that together for just a moment. As we think back on the history of God dealing with man as it's revealed in Scripture, God covenanted with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, first human beings, made uniquely in God's image, unlike any other creature. God entered into a covenant relationship with Adam, and He said, basically what? He told him, you know, be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate it, all these things. God is going to be his God, be with him, all of that stuff. And the deal, the terms of the agreement were these. There weren't many in terms of the rules and the violations. Really, it was just one. You can eat anything. Don't eat from that tree. Don't do that. You can have anything in the whole world. It's yours. Fill it and subdue it. I'll be with you. But don't eat of that tree. Of course, Human beings seeking to satisfy ourselves apart from God. That's what we always do. Adam and Eve ate of that tree. That covenant that God made with Adam in the garden is rightly understood to be a covenant according to works. A covenant according to works. In that, if you abide by these rules, it will go well for you. If you break this covenant by doing this, you will die. And God Ultimate spiritual death, sin, horror, horror. I don't have to convince you that that's true. Came into the world then. Everything that is wrecked and messed up in your life came into the world then. Everything that we see on the news that breaks our hearts, scares us to death, came into the world then. Okay, so that was serious business, the breaking of that covenant. But then, as I mentioned earlier in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, 
God makes a promise then. He makes a covenant then that I will send one who will crush the head of the serpent is going to reverse this thing. From that point forward, so from Genesis 3.15 onward, we are talking about the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption wholesale. And it's going to have particular eras and other smaller covenants within it. But it is all God's covenant of redemption. It could all be called rightly a covenant of grace. Because Adam and Eve had messed it up. They no longer deserved anything good from God. All they deserved, all we deserve is judgment, penalty, wrath. So the covenant of grace begins at Genesis 3.15. And then it will have various manifestations. So all of the covenants revealed after that. Here's a way to think about it. After Genesis 3.15. There's a covenant, of course, made with Noah. Where God says, I'm not going to destroy the earth again by a flood. But then especially as we get to the covenant with Abraham. And then the covenant with Moses. The covenant that's made with David. That there would be a son of David's that would sit on the throne forever. And he would have an everlasting kingdom. On into the new covenant. All of those covenants revealed after Genesis 3.15. They serve to further unfold God's plan of redemption. That's what he's doing. Remember too. That all of this is happening in time and space. Right? It's revealed over time. This, This is what is often referred to as progressive revelation. God did not reveal everything at one point in history. He reveals it over the course of like 1,500 years through 40 different authors to comprise what we know as the Bible, Holy Scripture. So God covenanted with Abraham. He made the promise. God gave the law through the Mosaic Covenant, which was essentially a reissuing of the covenant of works with gracious provision. So if you were to think of it in those terms, it's a reissuing of the covenant of works. Do this and you'll be blessed. Do these things and you will not be blessed. You will face judgment. But then there's this gracious provision called the sacrificial system. Even in the law. This is often escapes us, I think. Even when we look at the law, we don't see the grace. We don't see the gracious provisions that are in the law. Had God ever intended for his people to be saved by obeying the law, by their merit, the sacrificial system would not exist. If you're going to earn it, you better earn it. We're not going to be throwing these free passes, these mulligans in regularly. There's no grace if it's merit. It's one or the other. So even the law, the Mosaic Covenant, was full of grace. Gracious provision for the weakness of sinners like us. So then, that's how the Mosaic Covenant given with gracious provision, subservient to that promise that God had made to Abraham... We move on into that Davidic covenant where God tells David, as I said earlier, you're going to have a son. He's going to sit on your throne forever. He's going to have an everlasting kingdom. He will be to me a son and I to him a father. And we know ultimately, who's that pointing to? Jesus Christ. Because that's who all the covenants point to. Because it's all about him. Okay, so then the new covenant is revealed. We start to hear rumblings of it in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Where Moses will talk about the circumcision of the heart that's coming. We hear about it in Jeremiah 31, where God is going to do this new thing, where he's going to write his law on the hearts of his people, right? And then we read about it in Ezekiel 36, where he tells us he's going to take the hearts of stone out of his people and give them a heart of flesh. He's going to put his spirit within them, and then he's going to write his law there on their hearts, and they will be his. He will cleanse them from their unrighteousness. And then, of course, as Christ comes on the scene... We begin to understand more and more exactly how this new covenant thing is going to work. 
that there came one who would fulfill the law and atone for sin. And that by trusting in him, we can be justified. God's revelation is unfolding for us over the course of 1500 years. And it's amazing to see. So the point that Paul is in one sense making and what I want us to grasp hold of together is that when we read our Bibles this way, when we understand how it hangs together in this framework of redemptive history, it keeps us from doing stupid things with it, frankly. It keeps us from doing foolish things with the Bible. We don't flatten all the covenants and make them like they're just the same. But then we don't cancel one covenant with another. We're not just... Oh, well, the Bible says this over here, and the Bible says this over here, and and so I'm just going to cancel that with this. We don't do foolishness like that when we understand the redemptive historical framework of the Bible and how God is giving this to us over the course of time. And so, with Paul's argument here today, it's very clear in his mind that if we were to go back to the Mosaic Covenant, not only was the Mosaic Covenant subservient to the promise that God made to Abraham, But if we were to go back to the Mosaic Covenant, we are, in a sense, turning back the clock in salvation history. We are turning back the clock in redemptive history. Let's not do that. Paul has also clearly been arguing that in addition to doing that, if we go back to law-keeping and circumcision and all these things, we're attempting to establish our own righteousness rather than trusting and acknowledging the righteousness that only comes through faith in Christ. In Paul's mind... This is a horrible mistake. As Paul is writing this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And anyone here this morning I trust who's been given eyes to see and ears to hear is also seeing that. Like that would be a terrible mistake. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? Turn back the clock and go back to this works righteousness thing. So I began our time together today by asking you a question. I asked you where your hope is found. I ask you where your confidence lies. I'm going to kind of bring us back to that for a moment. Big takeaway from this text for us is that the promise of God, that is salvation and redemption, is not grounded in us being able to keep the law. The promise of God is grounded in the promise of God. The promise of God is grounded in Him, in His faithfulness, His grace, His character. And I don't know about you, but as I stand here before you as a struggler and a sinner, that's good news to me. That my obedience, my performance, my heart, my thoughts, nothing is standing on that because that's pretty fragile. That's pretty weak. That vacillates from moment to moment sometimes. Again, think back on your week. Think back on a month. Think about your last month. Maybe. I'm sure that in a month you've had really cool things happen. You've had fun things happen. You've maybe had rest at points. Time away. Refreshment with good friends, good food. Fun things. But then I trust over the last month, you've had some really hard things happen too. Really hard. Some of you, I know how hard it is. And we all experience those things and we all struggle as a result of it. So it's more than that, though. Of course, the circumstances are real. The circumstances are hard. But as I've already said, we struggle at the heart level 
at the mind level, the thought level, with the best of intentions, the best of intentions. Like you, you wake up in the morning and you're like, it's one of those days, you know, where it's, things are just going well. The Lord's on my mind. I, I had a great time, you know, in the Word, a good cup of coffee, whatever it is, whatever you do, right? Whatever your thing is. It's happening. I'm setting off on this day. I've got the best of intentions, you know. I'm singing whatever my favorite praise song is on the way into work, whatever. It's just great. I'm just filled with the joy of the Lord. And then it's like, even on those days, you look up a few hours later sometimes and it's like, what has happened? What has happened? With the best of intentions, with real earnest effort to live for God, we still sin. This is never a question of like, no, I just don't, don't, you know, God's got this, don't try. No, we try, we strive, we fight. We fight and we wrestle and we preach to ourselves. We plead with each other. We pray and we cry out to God. All of these things we should be doing. We do that and yet the struggle is real. Amen, somebody. Because I, I trust I am not alone in that. Okay, so if that's true, if that's true, here's a question. Why are you here? Why are you here? If you're here to just kind of do this religious thing that people do on Sundays, really, that's why you're here. You're here to just kind of take your spiritual vitamin and feel better, really. Why are you here? What has brought you here on this Sunday morning? So many other things you could be doing. My goodness, it's not raining for like the first time in two weeks. Why are you here? I, I trust that you're here for like high-level God realities. I trust that you're here for things like the Word of God because it's the only infallible source of truth. And you want to sit under it. You want to submit your life to it. You want to be changed by it. You want to have your eyes opened by it. You want to have your heart stirred by the Word of God. I trust you're here for those reasons. I trust you're here for sacrament reasons. What I'm talking about is the fact that we're going to take of the Lord's table in just a moment as this means that God has given us of sustaining faith. But we together, as brothers and sisters in Christ, will come to this table to look back upon what Christ has done in having His body broken and His blood shed for us, and we proclaim His death until He comes back. That's what we're going to do. We do it every week. I trust you're here for those reasons. And I trust you're here for the church, the people of God. I trust you're here because you know, you know darn well you can't do it by yourself. You know that it's like, man, if it's, I know I have the Holy Spirit, I know I have the Word of God, but like, I need the people of God. And you know that and you're here. I trust that's why you're here. And ultimately, all of those things, as great as they are, they all are means to an end. They all point to something even greater, someone even greater. I hope you're here because you know how desperately you need Jesus Christ. I hope that you're here because you're coming, struggling, sinning, and you're thinking, man, I hope he holds Jesus out to me today. That's what I understand my primary job as a preacher to be. If I do not hold Jesus Christ out to you every week and say, trust him, rest in him, look to him who fulfilled the law for you and atoned for your sin, 
and conquer death and sin and Satan and hell in his resurrection. Look to the one who ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty who prays for you. He prays for you. Look to Him. Trust in Him. Cast yourself upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. If I don't do that every week, fire me. I am failing you as your pastor. He is your only hope in mind. He is the only place for you to stand. He is the only way that you know that you'll get to be with God forever. It's grounded in Christ and in Him alone. Through Him, through the promise, comes the inheritance. And through the promised one comes that inheritance. So friend, brother, or sister, trust Christ. Where does your confidence lie? Where is your hope? I hope your immediate answer is, brother, it's Jesus Christ. His righteousness for me. That's the ground of my hope and my confidence. And unlike another human being, unlike a pastor, if you place your confidence in Christ, He will never let you down. For all of those who trust in Him will never be put to shame. You ultimately can hope in Christ because Jesus never fails. Never once has He failed. Never will He fail. He says He's got you. He says He'll hold you fast. He keeps His promises. Praise be to His name. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You. As we so often do at the end of our time in Galatians, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for Your promises that You have made to us in Him. We praise You that Your promises do not rest on something as fragile as our ability to obey or something as weak and volatile as our hearts. We praise You that we stand on the solid rock whose name is Jesus Christ. We pray that You would continue to work in us by Your Holy Spirit as we trust in Your Son. Continue to make us more like Jesus. Continue to renew our minds. We pray that we would battle sin well. We pray that we would love one another well. We pray that we would live honestly and humbly before each other and before you. We pray for your help in all of these things. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.